Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. The scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil as they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see all is vanity and a chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is but a chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have to give Kay Meyer a little bit of credit this morning because there was not a script prepared for her for that children's sermon. And if you paid attention to the reading from scripture this morning, it leaves us perhaps with more questions than answers. The author of Ecclesiastes himself offers more questions 
than answers. And so uh, if you don't get anything from the sermon you're about to hear, at least I know you got the image of the sandcastle, which is a helpful image as we think about the good word that is to be found in the reading from Ecclesiastes. Two women were traveling on a private plane when it crashed on a deserted island in the South Pacific. After the crash, one of the women began doing what you and I would probably do, searching the island to see if there was anyone there, any civilization, but she found nothing, and so she rushed back over to her friend, screaming, we're trapped. This place is uninhabited. There's no food and no water. We're going to die here. The other woman leaned back against the fuselage of the wrecked plane and calmly responded, don't worry, we're going to be fine. I make $10 million a year. The woman grabbed her friend by the shoulders and shook her saying, snap out of it. Didn't you hear me? We are stranded on this deserted island. There is no food. There is no water. We are going to die. Unfazed, her friend said again, don't worry, we're going to be fine. I make $10 million a year. The first woman didn't know what to do, so she yelled back, you must have hit your head in this crash. I am telling you, we are doomed. There is nothing on this island. There is no food. There are no other people. It doesn't matter how much money you make, we are going to die. Her friend looked her straight in the eyes and said, don't make me say this again. We have nothing to worry about. I make $10 million a year, and I give 10% to my church. Don't you understand? My pastor will find us. <laughs> we laugh because as ridiculous as it is, we suspect that there might be just a kernel of truth somewhere in this story. At the same time, we can hear through the words of the first more sensible woman an echo of the ancient words of the ancient philosopher who wrote Ecclesiastes. The King James Version calls it vanity. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But the New International Version says it more like this. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It doesn't matter how much money we make or how hard we work. What do humans gain from all their labor and all their toiling under the sun? Still, it sounds like the wealthy woman has heard some extraordinarily good stewardship sermons in her days and has responded in such a way that instilled within her a confidence that even though others may give up the search, her pastor, like a good shepherd, will search until she is found. And I don't want to beat around the bush this morning. This is a stewardship sermon and yet, as is often the case, 
The wisdom found in today's reading speaks to so much more than just our financial investments. It cuts straight through all of that and gets to the bigger, more existential, more philosophical, and more spiritual question underneath all of it. What is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of my life? This question is important on the good days, on the normal days, but on days like today when the layers of grief are compounding in our lives, we often ask this question with a more serious and heavy tone, one that is well-versed in the woes of human mortality and yet one that stubbornly clings to a hope that life cannot be totally meaningless. Surely there is some value, some worth, some purpose to our human existence. In our faith tradition, sometimes even asking the question, what is the meaning of my life, is perceived as a lack of faith. Jesus, they say, is the meaning of life. That's always the right Sunday school answer. And it sounds good, But when we pursue it just a little, it becomes hard to explain at best and completely superficial at worst. But when we look at the broader Christian tradition, though, and when we pay attention to some of those undercurrents that flow throughout Christian history, we will soon discover that doubt, even on this magnitude, Doubt that helps us ask the question, what is the meaning of all of this? That kind of doubt is an ever-present companion to faith throughout all of Christian history. Doubt and faith go hand in hand, and perhaps there is no better biblical example of this than the narrative found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, it is not a commonly quoted book, except for the third chapter, which people love to repeat. You know it. For everything, there is a... See? You remember it. But the bigger frame into which those words were penned is an epic tale on the scale of Gilgamesh. In fact, even though those two literary works, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Book of Ecclesiastes, are separated by more than 2,000 years of history, their stories are remarkably similar. The main character, a, a kingly ruler of sorts with almost superhuman qualities, goes on a quest to exhaust all wisdom and knowledge only to find that such pursuits are meaningless, pointless, fruitless, because human beings cannot possibly know it all. Gilgamesh would say that the fullness of knowledge remains in the realm of the gods. Ecclesiastes would say that wisdom resides with Yahweh, the one eternal God. But both agree that for humans, there are some things that will just have to remain mystery. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, the book of Ecclesiastes has been called the strangest book of the Bible. The strangest book of the Bible. 
which might explain why there are so few references to it in the Revised Common Lectionary. That's the schedule of readings uh, that most mainline Christian churches attend to for preaching and teaching. But even still, I believe, and other biblical scholars would agree, that the author's struggle, the person who wrote Ecclesiastes, their struggle, which is told as the whole narrative unfolds, is mythic. It is epic. It is timeless in a sense that it resonates with every generation, both ancient and contemporary alike. You know, we're not completely sure who it was that wrote the book. Tradition credits King Solomon, and that's why this book appears in our Bibles with the other wisdom literature like Proverbs and Song of Solomon. But a close reading of the text itself raises some questions about Solomon's authorship. So we're not completely sure he is the person who wrote it. But what matters more is that the author is deeply engaged in the world. The author is aware of what is happening around him and what that means for the life of faith. You see, the person behind that ancient pen or that ancient keyboard is struggling. His beliefs are in line with the traditional theologies of his time, which means he believes in one God, the creator of the world, and he believes that this one God has the power to correct all of the injustices that he sees, and he also believes that humanity is weak. From dust you were born, to dust you will return. He understands the traditional theological assumptions of his time, which say that divine blessings flow among the righteous and that struggle is inflicted among the wicked. That's the ancient way of saying good things happen to good people. And of course, you know the implied opposite. Bad things happen to bad people. But this ancient author is struggling with what he believes and what he sees. His theology is at odds with his experience. In other words, he is in the midst of a crisis of meaning. Things in his world do not measure up to those traditional beliefs. And all of a sudden, this ancient book is starting to sound a lot like Kate Bowler's Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And it is precisely in the middle of this crisis, this crisis of meaning, that the epic journey begins. The journey in pursuit of wisdom, of meaning, of purpose beyond all apparent vanities. Now, I know that my time is running short and I need to wrap it up, so I'm going to spoil the ending for you. After a chapter's long tale, again, one that reminds us of the ancient Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh, the author discovers that even in the face of unyielding madness and folly, joy still comes. Even in the midst of madness and folly, joy still comes. And when it does, it is a gift from God. And it's often found, according to Ecclesiastes, not in those 
big, impressive things like wealth and power and fame and good fortune, the things that we toil after day after day after day. But those moments of joy come more often in the smaller and more ordinary things. You know, things like sharing a pew with somebody who knows your pain. Like sharing a meal with somebody who knows you better than you know yourself. The good stuff and the not so good stuff. Like singing a hymn and remembering all the times you've sung it before, whether it was a funeral or a regular church service, or maybe one of those times when you're washing the dishes and you hear yourself singing the familiar hymn. Yes, even though the answers are not always so apparent and the path toward wisdom is not always linear nor clear, the ancient author of this epic tale finds that it's better to be wise than a fool That's chapter 7. It is better to live in the moment than in the past, also chapter 7. It's better to make the most of the time that we have here, chapter 9, and that one should seek God with all the time that one has, chapter 12. Furthermore, the meaning of life is most often found in the pursuit of and the presence of of God. The meaning of life is most often found, according to this ancient sage, in the pursuit and the presence of God. Everything else is meaningless. Now, I must confess to you that there are days when I question this as well. There are days when I ask, what is the purpose of all of this. And I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that same question. But without fail, as soon as the questions begin to overpower, I'll come to church. And my reasons for being here may be different from yours. I come to church because it's my rhythm. It's my top priority. It's my most holy commitment. It also happens to be my job. But when I make it here, You show me that this really matters. You show me that. This matters not because this is a place where we have everything figured out. It matters not even because we know how to answer that very poignant question. It matters not because the work that we do in this world can right every injustice. I don't know if we can do that. It matters not because we have it all figured out, but it matters because we are merely human, showing up and sharing a common pursuit toward wisdom, toward justice, toward peace, toward knowledge, and toward the mystery of God that is far bigger than anything we can ever understand, except in part. So we keep showing up with and for one another, offering what we have, time, talents, resources, and we do it because somewhere deep down, we know that this is the only thing that matters, and everything else is meaningless. 
Mary Oliver ends one of her magnificent poems with a profound question, which honestly reminds us of this book of Ecclesiastes and sounds eerily like the words and the testimony of Job. They're not all that different. But in modern words, her poem issues the same call and challenge that the text issues to us on this Stewardship Sunday, a Sunday in which we ponder what is the meaning of life, you know, among other questions that keep us awake at night. So hear now her words from poem 133 called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper, this grasshopper? I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating the sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Well, here is my answer. As often as I can, as much as I can, as best I can, I plan to invest it here, here in God's church, working to build up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Remembering the prayer of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the best answer I can come up with. How about you? What is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Where will you invest your time and your talents, your energy and your resources? And when your choice is made, your days are done. Will you find that your greatest investments yielded great meaning or great vanity? I guess the truth remains to be seen. Amen.